Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere, from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there, with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are always ready to help you personalize your insurance plan so you can create a policy that fits your needs. You can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. And you can always call one of the State Farm agents in neighborhoods across the country. Get a great rate without sacrificing great service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This episode is brought to you by me. That probably sounds painfully obvious, but let me explain. I now have something to promote. Taking a page from Professor Bob Packett, I wanted to offer the podcast on CDs for those who don't have an MP3 player or don't want to bother with technology. But anyone can work a CD. You just pop it in. So, if there's a birthday that's coming up for that person who's hard to shop for, well, here you go. I've broken up the episodes into volumes that have a common theme, and you can see everything on the website, worldwar2podcast.net. Just look for the store tab at the top of the screen. Each volume is only $13, and shipping is free worldwide. So, let me hear from you, Australia. Each CD has Paul Finch's amazing artwork on the cover, a second piece of artwork on the inside, and a list of the episodes. The running time for each volume varies, but there's anywhere from 5 to almost 9 hours of material on each one. So check it out, and I'll keep adding volumes as I get enough episodes together to make more. See? Wasn't that shorter than an Audible commercial? So, before we begin, I wanted to point out a mistake I made on the last episode. Last time I said, when it seemed that Hitler was trying to sit on the fence in regards to the invasion of Britain, he was violently pushed off that fence in mid to late July when the Soviet Union took over control of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Of course, what I meant to say was that, since that had already happened on June 21st, not July 21st, Hitler was already worried about Russia, and any and all pretense at a pro-Soviet government within those countries came to an end after the first week of August. But Hitler knew what was happening. He did the same thing in Austria. And just to finish up that story here, Moscow sent a similar ultimatum to Romania at 10 p.m. on June 26th. Bessarabia and the northern part of the province Bakovina were demanded, and Stalin wanted an answer the next day. Hitler and his generals were disturbed by this, but that area was in accord with the non-aggression pact with the USSR, signed in August of 1939. So Germany urged Romania to comply, and on June 27th, the Romanian troops left the disputed areas, and the Russian troops moved in. The communists were now at the mouth of the Danube. This event could have only hampered Hitler's enthusiasm for an invasion to his northwest, when he clearly needed to keep an eye on his eastern flank. Now, back to our story. Thank you for listening to The History of World War II, Episode 45, Numbers Tell. 
In our story, Adler Tog is approaching fast. Goering was supremely confident of the outcome and only waited on Hitler to give the word. And why not be confident, given their unstinted success and Goering's overall lack of technical knowledge? But the reality was, for all their victories, combat experience, and technological development, the Luftwaffe was not geared for the type of campaign they were about to unleash on Great Britain. There was never an overall conceptual plan in Goering's head, just confidence in whatever he decided. But there were such plans in some of his subordinates, but that mattered little to the big-picture Reich Marshal. Goering also lacked the ability to modify his tactics for a desired goal. That would have only taken more time. For Adler Tog, just on the horizon, some serious questioning was needed about Luftwaffe aircraft. Their fighters clearly needed a longer range for this operation. Their bombers, who would be left alone at some point, especially if they wanted to attack north of London, needed better armament. But all this was more or less ignored by Goering, who was only outranked by Hitler himself. And, due to Studia Blau, or Study Blue, lightly weighed the capability of RAF planes and pilots. Goering's view, combined with the high morale of Luftwaffe pilots, along with the seemingly unstoppable Messerschmitt 109E, left Britain with little hope. By the time of the Battle of Britain, the ME-109E was shrouded in myth and mystery, and of course the propaganda ministry in Berlin certainly helped that along. But the Luftwaffe in general, and its pilots in particular, would suffer due to this misplaced mystique. Because there was no mystery. The aircraft was simply a well-conceived, soundly designed, and battle-tested machine. Some of the things that made it a formidable predator were its excellent handling characteristics, responses at slow speeds, and its climbing and diving ability that were second to none. This last part was mostly due to the fuel injection the Messerschmitt used versus a carburetor feed used by RAF aircraft. During negative G, when going from level flying to a steep dive, the fuel injector was not affected as a normal float carburetor. Their flow of fuel would be disrupted for a few seconds as the plane was inverted or dived upright. Still, these few seconds were all a 109 needed to pull away. But the ME had flaws. Its controls got heavy at high speeds, and having no trimmer meant the pilot had to continuously use the rudder to keep the aircraft straight. The Spitfire's development would parallel the ME in production, and there was little difference in performance between the two in the 12,000 to 17,000 feet range. But the 109E's ability would start to stand out at 20,000 feet and only got better as the altitude increased. The Messerschmitt was designed by Dippel Ing Willy Messerschmitt and Dippel Ing Robert Lusser. Dippel Ing stands for Diplom Ingenieur, as in someone who has a degree in engineering roughly the equivalent of a master's degree from the U.S. And it's only fitting that the production of this swift fighter was completed in an incredibly short amount of time. A prototype first flew some months before the hurricane and Spitfire on May 28, 1935. This particular plane had a Rolls-Royce Kestrel V liquid-cooled inline engine. As the engine planned for it, a Junkers Jumo 210 wasn't ready yet.
but nothing could be allowed to slow down the readying of the next major weapon of Nazi Germany. Speed was paramount for Hitler and Goering as they knew what the future held for Europe. A second and then third prototypes were built and improvements were made. The new models got the intended Jumo 210A inverted V engine and quickly got permission from the Luftwaffenführungsstab, or Air Force Command Operations Staff, in March of 36, to be the next fighter for mass production for the Luftwaffe. The timing of this decision coincided with the first flight of the Spitfire prototype. Here's where the normal evolution of getting a new fighter to the front was quickened. The first production model left the assembly line of augsburg Hausenstetten on February 1937, and by the following month, 16 ME-10Bs were shipped directly from the factory to the Tablada airfield in Seville, Spain, used by the Condor Legion in the Spanish Civil War. And by April of that same year, 1937, the Condors were releasing their Heinkel 51 single-seat biplanes to retirement. So during a time of combat, and with all the normal testing, fixing, retesting phases of development of a new piece of major equipment, this was an impressive feat. One of the few benefits of a dictatorship. But for the Messerschmitt, it was only the beginning. On November 11, 1937, an ME fitted with a Daimler-Benz DB601 engine set a new speed record at 379.38 miles an hour, or 610.53 kilometers an hour. Yes, I'm an American. But the improvements kept on coming. The ME-109B was soon replaced by the 109C and then the 109D. However, these variations still had the Jumo engine underneath. In other words, these rapid, constant improvements were made to the design of the aircraft. When the ME-109E came out, it housed the new inverted V Daimler-Benz engine. An inverted engine allowed the pilot a better view over the nose of his plane. The Predator could now chase down all existing aircraft. The first series of ME-109E fighters began to leave the assembly lines at the beginning of 1939, and with the Daimler-Benz engine approved in late 1938, the 109E was the cutting edge of fighter technology and the Daimler-Benz was a more powerful engine than the Merlins being put into the contemporary Hurricanes and Spitfires. As for firepower, the earlier MEs had four 7.9mm Rhein-Metall-Borsig MG-17 machine guns, but as time went on, the Luftwaffen-Führungsstab favored the more lethal but slower-firing 20mm MGFF cannon. These would be mounted in the wings and become standardized as supplies allowed. However, it was decided to keep the twin fuselage-mounted MG-17 machine guns with 100 rounds per each attached as well. This combination of cannons and machine guns made the ME-109E a deadly combatant. As impressive as this firepower was, arrogance or a sense of urgency led those responsible to decide on not adding armor protection for the pilot or fuel tank, as well as not including a bulletproof windscreen. But all these and more were added later as losses over the channel mounted. The ME's takeoff was impressively short as well. Fully loaded, it weighed 5,875 pounds, but could still take off and be at 10,000 feet in under four minutes. 
Because the fuel tank was behind the pilot and limited to the size and shape of the fuselage, it only held 400 liters, which meant crossing the channel, giving combat for only 20 minutes, and returning to base on a practically empty tank. Its maximum range was London before it was forced to turn back. Although only 400 machines were built in 1938, no fewer than 1,091 planes were built between January 1 and September 1 of 1939. When the code word Ostmarkflug was given to launch the attack on Poland, there were at least 946 serviceable MEs for combat in the East. And given the state of the Polish Air Force, the ME seemed almost invincible. But it wasn't until the war in France that the engineers learned that further improvements were needed to the ME-109. The cockpit canopy was redesigned and reinforced. The pilot was now sitting in a 8mm thick armored seat, and the rate of the 20mm cannon was improved in the summer and autumn of 1940. By August 10th, three days before Adler Tog, 934 ME-109Es were available for Luftflot 2 based in the Netherlands, Belgium, and northern France, and Luftflot 3 based in the rest of occupied France. And all through July, these MEs, with their experienced pilots and superior tactics, were able to cause the RAF significant concern. However, the numerous ME-109s couldn't be everywhere at once, and as time went on and the ME-110s limitations became apparent, the ME-109s were forced into a role of protecting bombers and unable to hunt freely. Also, it was just a matter of time before the RAF, but in particular the practical doubting and park, changed their tactics to match those of the Luftwaffe. When that happens, the Battle of Britain becomes more or less a contest of equals. But of course, there were still fighter commands, RDF stations along the southern coast. An excerpt from the book The Battle of Britain by Time Life Books. Goering spoke to his Luftwaffe commanders on the 6th of August as if the Battle of Britain were still off in the future. But from the British point of view, the battle was already underway. Even then, a dogfight was in progress over the Straits of Dover as German dive bombers, protected by fighters, sought to sink, split, or turn back a British convoy that was attempting to break through the Thames estuary and to the port of London. RAF fighter planes were dispatched to drive them off, and in the subsequent clashes, which lasted all afternoon, the British lost six of their planes and the Luftwaffe seven of theirs. The convoy got through. It was on this day that a fussy RAF control room commander listened with shocked astonishment to the language coming over the loudspeakers in the room where the members of the Women's Auxiliary Air Force were at work, plotting aircraft positions on the control room's operation tables. The loudspeakers were directly connected to the airborne RAF pilots dogfighting over the channel, and in the heat of battle, their language, both to the ground and to their comrades, was uninhibited and coarse. The control room commander decided that it was much too rough for my ladies, to listen to and ordered them to move out of range of the loudspeakers. A pert squadron officer, speaking on behalf of her staff, refused. Good heavens, sir, she said. Most of us have been listening to words like that since we first heard our fathers and brothers cussing around the house. I expect we're going to hear much worse than this before this lot is over.
she was right. And now, the Battle of Britain. If the Luftwaffe had been able to peer through the haze over the channel on Tuesday, July 23rd, they would have been amazed to have found nothing. At least when it came to convoys. Downing's earlier suggestion that ships stick to the east coast and make for the Atlantic via Scotland was taken up. He reasoned that attacking bombers would have to make do without fighter escorts due to their limited range. Why make it convenient for the Germans based along the north French coast? Of course, what the British could not know was that the Luftwaffe was still in a reconnaissance mode for the most part, like the last few days. But an exception to this was an attack on a convoy near Yarmouth, just a hundred miles northeast of London, on the coast. A hurricane responded and severely damaged a Junkers bomber, and although no one saw it go down, it's doubtful it made it home. Next, just after 8 a.m., in that same area, near Lowestoft, another bomber flew over, but only dropped a single bomb and from a great height. Clearly, the pilot was thinking of survival, not accuracy. But then it seemed to fighter command that things had returned to normal. Reconnaissance flights were sent out, and German fighters looked for opportunities where possible. But most raids that day would turn back and head for home before they could be confronted by the RAF. Later that morning, a raid was detected near Kenley, just south of London, and a squadron was sent up. The ultimate target of the raid was not known, because the bombers dropped their loads and went back the way they came before the British fighters could make contact. The testing of fighters' command responses continued that morning as at least six German aircraft flew over North Foreland in the southeast and bombed several trawlers. Two RAF squadrons responded, but no victories on either side could be confirmed. The same testing-response-evade pattern played out along the coast for the rest of the day. Around 3.30 that afternoon, Fighter Command and 12 Group, above London, got a shock when, somehow, about nine raiders suddenly appeared on the RDF system about 50 miles east of Harwich. No one could figure out why they had not been detected earlier. Squadrons were quickly activated, and the attackers turned away. But one can only imagine the many technicians who missed sleep that night, trying to figure out what happened. Further north, just minutes after the raiders appeared on the RDF, a Dornier was spotted near Kennard's Head, but it was intercepted and shot down by Spitfires. Some guessed that the two raids may have been connected. It's also probable that the Luftwaffe was testing the limitations of the RDF system, because an hour after the ghost raiders appeared out of nowhere, another, though smaller raid, crossed the shoreline near Yarmouth again, on the east coast. They traveled south over land, released their bombs over Pullman Market, and left over the coast further south. And although a squadron was sent out to engage, the raiders disappeared into the clouds. The RAF pilots pursued as long as prudent, but were unable to locate them, even with the knowledge that they were close by. The day ended like it had begun, with a raid plotted over North Scotland around 6 p.m. Fighters were scrambled, but the raiders pulled away and used their speed to escape before they could be engaged. That night saw considerably less activity than of late. Fighter Command presumed what activity there was centered around reconnaissance flights and mine laying. But military sea forts 
especially those around Liverpool and the Thames Estuary, helped plot the course of the mine lane because besides being equipped with heavy guns, those particular sea forts also carried radar. They resembled modern offshore oil rigs, and their radar's accurate readings allowed the Royal Navy minesweepers to easily find and remove most mines meant for British shipping. That night, the eastern coast was focused on by the mine-laying Luftwaffe pilots from Dover to Fourth Estuary. However, the RDF near the Thames Estuary and South Coast mostly plotted raiders looking for possible bombing targets. Kinnear's Head saw at most two raids that night, but no damage or bombs were reported. Still, one of the potential raiders did not get away, as a Heinkel 111 was shot down near Dunbar, just east of Edinburgh, on the coast, soon after midnight. To the west that night, at least eight raiders were plotted, but disappeared for a while from the RDF. Had the Luftwaffe figured out something to block their detection? A worst-case scenario could not be thought of by fighter command. But then, the raiders reappeared around the Liverpool area as anti-aircraft guns took aim and fired. But no victories could be confirmed. But soon, an even more potentially disturbing news came to fighter command, and indeed, the war cabinet. Just after midnight, a smoke screen near Dover was reported by the Observer Corps. It was estimated to be 100 feet long and at least 30 feet high. Some guessed it was the first step to an invasion, but it was later judged to be an attempt to disrupt British bombers heading over on their own raiding sorties that night. And although that particular bombing run was attacked by Luftwaffe pilots, all aircraft returned home safe. The only confirmed bombs dropped that night by the Luftwaffe was near Hartlepool, on the east coast between Hull and Edinburgh. The Luftwaffe's tactics for the day lowered their losses to only three, but they also robbed themselves of any chance to take out RAF fighters, as none were shot down. However, that night, Ginger Lacey was almost killed by his own country's AA fire. He was being sent all over his group area by a controller when he spotted a Heinkel 111. He closed in and, just to be sure, sent out the letters of the day to let everyone below know he was one of them. Fighters flashed the letters of the day and the bombers flashed the colors of the day. But the German pilot had obviously learned that day's codes and fired off a red light and then a green one. Suddenly, all the searchlights focused on Ginger and ten seconds later, so did their guns. He barely got out of there and later when he landed realized that it was past midnight and he had flashed the letters for the previous day. Ginger wasn't mad at the people below. They were doing their job. He was mad at himself because it was very rare for a fighter to find a bomber at night. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me, switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't wanna do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Tech. Total recorded losses to date were still 47 for the RAF and 74 for the Luftwaffe. There was also action 
of a sort on that day, July 23rd, in North America. The U.S. government, in the person of Undersecretary of State Sumner Wells, declared that the U.S. would not recognize the Soviet annexation and incorporation of the three Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. But the U.S. was not willing or prepared to do anything about it. Meanwhile, just over 8,000 Canadian troops left Halifax, Nova Scotia, on troop ships bound for Britain. They were escorted by the Canadian destroyers HMCS Assiniboine and Sagune, and the British cruiser HMS Emerald. The troop ships would safely arrive in Scotland on August 1st. The German bomber pilots were finding that having the time to line up a bomb run undisturbed was a luxury that had come and gone. So trying to take advantage of the near-dark conditions of early morning, a single German bomber dropped his payload about 6.30 a.m. on Wednesday, July 24th, on a Rolls-Royce factory in Hillingdon, near Glasgow. He missed, but instead hit and practically destroyed a printing and stationery shop. There were 18 injuries, with one seriously so, and the Rolls factory suffered slight damage. Of the other buildings nearby, many only had to deal with broken windows. RAF fighters responded, and the raider was intercepted after dropping his load. One RAF pilot thinks he killed the rear gunner and took out one of the engines. If correct, it's hard to see the damaged plane getting back to its base. But no one in 13 Group would ever know because the bomber made it into the clouds and was lost. Several reconnaissance flights by the Luftwaffe were plotted near Aberdeen that day, but no further bombing was reported in the north. About an hour later, several Junkers 88s attacked shipping in the Bristol area. No ships were sunk, but one of the Junkers was shot down by a Spitfire from 92 Squadron. As for the Channel, there were many reconnaissance flights that day, but they all turned away, including the fighters and bombers that followed, before combat could be offered. That is, except in the southeast. The clouds continued over the Channel on July 24th, but were relatively high, and visibility was much better than of late, and gave the newly promoted Major Adolf Gallant the chance he and his Geschwalder had been looking for. He and his were escorting bombers going after a convoy that had been spotted earlier that morning in the Thames estuary. At first, his group was part of a larger force attacking shipping over the Straits of Dover, but as a squadron lifted off to make contact, some of the German fighters and bombers, led by Gallen, broke off a little after 8 a.m. and headed for the Thames estuary. Again, the Luftwaffe was trying different tactics to deal with the British radar. But this split was spotted as it was happening, and another squadron lifted off to assist. But 54 Squadron, led by Al Deer, couldn't wait for the 2nd Squadron. So, they split themselves and went after each raiding group. The raiders approaching the Thames were harassed to the point of dropping their bombs before making their target and returned home. But Major Galland scored a victory before turning around. His adversary's plane crashed into the water and was shortly joined by the pilot because his parachute failed to open. The Major was one of the initial few who knew the RAF pilots were made of stern stuff, to hell with steady blue. As if to prove the point further, several of the German bombers Gallen had been protecting did not make it home.
The same could be said for some of the bombers that attempted the raid over Dover. Again, there was enough harassment from the RAF fighters to ruin the aim of the Dorniers, as no ships were sunk. However, the German pilots were not only trying new tactics, but had another surprise for the RAF pilots. This had been reported a few times previously, but there had been no confirmation. But this time, many pilots witnessed it. It would be one more thing the RAF pilots had to factor into their flight tactics. It seems that the German bomber pilots, whether on orders from command or just on their own initiative, had started throwing coils of wire about 50 feet in length out of their window when under attack. Later, when there was more time to think, this seemingly outdated mode of defense made sense, given the British method of fighter attack. After lining up an enemy aircraft in their sights, and then firing a burst from their guns, pilots of a hurricane or spitfire would then push their control stick forward and bank either to port or starboard to go under the target aircraft. If the German pilot then threw something out of the window, it would go back and down and right into the fighter's path. This would force the British fighters in the future to either A, attack from a greater range, thus reducing their effectiveness, and then diving to clear the wires, or B, forcing the British aircraft to climb after an attack, thus placing him in a perfect position for the main gun armament of the enemy bomber. Now that this latest tactic was confirmed, Fighter Command HQ notified by memorandum all fighter squadrons and pilots. However, if the RAF thought the day's activities were over, they were wrong. Several reconnaissance flights were sent out over the East Coast after the earlier clashes and numerous convoys were spotted. The Luftwaffe would be back. Just after 11 o'clock that morning, about 18 Dorniers escorted by at least two squadrons of ME-109s, which meant about 40, and some HE-113s, took off from various fields and assembled behind Calais. They then headed for North Foreland, just off Ramsgate. The battle that followed lasted over an hour and was the biggest air clash since the second day of Dunkirk, and was called by some the Battle of the Thames Estuary. Three RAF squadrons responded, and combat was joined about 11.25 a.m. In terms of numbers, it was about 50 German planes versus 36 RAF fighters, and three of their pilots were just out of training. The Germans found that their larger numbers meant some of their bombers would get through, and those that did inflicted damage and casualties. The first to be hit was the minesweeping trawler Fleming. It gave way to the damage as 19 of its crew were killed, but three survivors were picked up by a fellow trawler nearby. As it sank below the waves, the planes above rose and dove at each other, and any semblance of organization or tactics was gone. Squadrons 54 and 65 were doing their best, but numbers played a big factor here. Another trawler, this one the anti-submarine HMS Kingston Galena, was hit and sunk as well. Sixteen of her crew died. The third and last trawler to be sunk was Rodino, off of Dover. Four of her crew perished. On this go-around, the Germans had the numbers, but they didn't and never would have the time. Soon, due to fuel, the German fighters had to leave. Still, the RAF did their best. They lost two, including Flight Officer Johnny Allen of 54 Squadron, but took out at least that many of the enemy fighters. 
As the donors were now exposed, more hits were recorded, and at least two of them were seen crashing into the water. In a move that would become as standard as yelling, Tally-ho, when an RAF pilot visually sighted the enemy, another squadron, this time 610 Squadron from Gravesend, was activated and told to cut off the retreat of the escaping Germans. Low on fuel, the remaining Luftwaffe aircraft wouldn't be able to engage to defend themselves, but had to continue straight ahead for northern France. 610 Squadron was able to score some more hits, and at least one more ME-109 was taken down. But for certain, Major Adolf Gallen was one of those shot down. In fact, he was the fourth major in as many weeks to be taken out of the skies. This forest-level, straight-ahead flying was probably another reason why one more ME-109 was lost to AA fire. Despite their losses, the Luftwaffe wasn't done with the day, yet. Just after 3 o'clock that afternoon, an enemy aircraft crossed the coast near Shoreham, about 30 miles east of the Isle of Wight. The bomber would drop 18 HE, or high-explosive, bombs on this raid. Six were dropped on the Vickers-Armstrong landing ground at Weybridge, which is just southwest of London, but one of the bombs did not explode. Next, the raider dropped six other bombs on the Wadsworth Gas Company containers at Walton-on-Thames. Little damage was reported except four wounded and broken glass, but more importantly, no type of war production was affected. The Junkers' last six bombs were dropped over St. George's Hill, but again, the damage was slight and there was no casualties. For whatever reason, the bomber was able to get back home without being intercepted. Still, Goering's Luftwaffe was not done. About 5.30 that afternoon, German aircraft located and bombed convoy ships off Dover. 74 Squadron quickly responded. No ships were sunk and at least one Dornier 215 was severely damaged off Manston. The 6 o'clock hour saw action as well, but of the two bombing raids, only the bombs dropped near Ipswich on the east coast detonated on contact. Still, no significant damage was reported. So the bombers were getting through, but in their seeming haste, were not nearly as accurate as they had been in previous campaigns. But the Luftwaffe was still not finished, Right before 8 p.m., a fighter was plotted about 20 miles south of Hastings, on the southern coast, about 30 miles west of Dover, and attacked inshore aircraft patrols. But the weather was turning worse, and the RAF pilot used this to escape. However, this same weather allowed the raider to leave unmolested as well. About an hour later, a Spitfire from 66 Squadron tangled with a plotted German fighter, and they went after each other as much as the weather allowed. During the dogfight, the RAF pilot lost control of his plane, and it went down about 30 miles northeast of Cromer. But he was later rescued. There was practically no activity that night, with the exception of a single mine-laying flight being plotted. However, there were lives lost this night, many of them, and it would be the French who suffered. Some 1,277 French sailors who had been captured during Operation Catapult on July 3rd were being returned home. They left Southampton for Marseille on a French steamer, Meekin. But about 10.30 that night, even though it was flying the French flag and with its lights indicating neutrality, was attacked and sunk by a German motor torpedo boat in the middle of the English Channel. British destroyers HMS Viscount 
Wolverine, Saber, and Shakira responded, saving as many of the men as possible. Still, 416 French sailors lost their lives. The activity in the air that day was as intense, numerically speaking, as it had been for some time. Thus, the casualties were higher than they had been, but could have been much higher. The RAF lost three aircraft and the Luftwaffe eight. Total reported losses to date were 50 and 82, respectively. Thursday, July 25th, was going to be a clear day. A slight mist hung over the Straits of Dover, but everywhere else, the weather was fine. And the Luftwaffe had been waiting for this. Although most shipping adhered to Dowding's wishes of sailing north of Scotland to get to the Atlantic, not all ships did. And as the mist cleared in the channel, the Luftwaffe's newly installed radar along the French northern coast picked up 21 merchant ships and two armed trawlers near Southend, located on the northern side of the Thames estuary. As intense as the clashes had been the day before, the Germans had a new hand to deal their adversaries in the channel. Shipping would be stopped, and Britain would be starved into submission. The early morning saw a raid to the northeast. A meteorological flight was plotted at 7.30 a.m., but it seemed that the aircraft was doing double duty. A WT, wireless telegraphy radio, intercepted a message that suggested the aircraft was checking the weather and laying mines. Clearly, no opportunity would be missed in making the United Kingdom's waters impassable. But nothing had changed with Fighter Command's quick response system, as an HE-111 pulling the same double duty was later shot down between the Orkneys and Kinnear's head. During the early morning, an attack was made on a convoy off Spurn Point, along the east coast, north of London. This raid was intercepted, and the raiding HE-111s were at least damaged, but more likely, probable casualties. In the channel, two raids approached Portland, about 40 miles west of White, but turned back, probably due to their radar or the picking up of heavy amounts of radio traffic, indicating the large number of escorts flying overhead. But later that morning, about 60 JU-87s or Stukas, escorted by ME-109s, led by Major Adolf Gallen, who had found his way home after being shot down the following day, approached Portsmouth. They had learned a lesson the day before about larger groups meant a certain level of success. They were plotted and three RAF fighter squadrons were dispatched to meet them. But as the raiders approached the Needles on the farthest western edge of White, they turned sharply westward towards Portland, but then zeroed in on the merchant ships. Again, numbers seemed to make a difference, and in mere minutes, five ships were sunk and five more were severely damaged. But the Germans weren't finished revealing their surprises. As the battle raged, nine German E-boats slipped into the fray to cause havoc. Two nearby British destroyers joined in, but were not able to save those ten ships from either being sunk or damaged. In fact, one of the destroyers had to be towed away after being hit by a Junkers 88 bomber. The armed trawlers were damaged as well. The slow-moving destroyer was to receive the Germans' final surprise for the day. Artillery set up on the coast at Calais opened up and made all the Royal Navy personnel's lives hell until they could get out of range. This coordination of air, sea, and land attack had a devastating effect that day. 
but the aerial combat ended soon after another squadron of hurricanes joined in. At least three RAF pilots went down in the contest, but they gave more than they got. Overall, 16 Luftwaffe aircraft would be shot down on this day. In two of the Spitfires that had been dealing with the numerical onslaught were New Zealanders Flight Lieutenant Alan Deere and Pilot Officer Colin Gray. Gray would go on to be New Zealand's most highly decorated pilot and top scorer with 27 and a half kills. But it was a hard day for everyone. Before it was finished, some pilots would spend six hours in the air, flying one sortie after another. But this was just the beginning for the Channel and Dover areas. Two more large raids came that day, dropping bombs on the Dover Harbor and RAF structures. But each time, the attackers lost more planes than they shot down. In fact, smaller raids would continue in this area and on nearby shipping until 7.30 that night. The two large subsequent raids came like clockwork. They would form up over Grisny near Calais, and as soon as the latest raid was back over France, they would then head in and attack shipping, Dover Harbor, and enemy fighters. The afternoon was filled with raids, reconnaissance flights, and dogfights all over the Channel, and bodies destroyed ships and crashing aircraft on the waves of the Channel. The RAF pilots in 11 Group were beyond exhausted, but as the German raids kept coming, they kept going up. An evening raid off Portsmouth was intercepted in time, and one German plane was seen tanking damage before disappearing into the water below. A second bomber was hit, but there were no witnesses of it splashing down. Soon after that, two raids of probably a single aircraft each crossed the coast near Poole, but weren't intercepted until they got to the Stroud area, about 20 miles northeast of Bristol. The Ukraine's 88 managed to shoot down the hurricane, pursuing it, but then itself was shot down by a training aircraft that had been able to respond. The second raider was killed by AA fire as it tried to make its way back to France. But the day's activity ended rather ignobly for the Luftwaffe, as a raid of at least 12 aircraft approached Ventnor, located on the southeast coast of White, only to turn back to base without giving combat as RAF fighters were dispatched to intercept. The British pilots headed for home, landed, and argued whose backs and backsides hurt more. To the far north, a raider was plotted over Scapa Flow, but caused no damage and left unmolested. The night only made the Luftwaffe bolder as a considerable number of mines were laid in the Firth of Forth as well as the Thames Estuary. In fact, the Thames Estuary was visited no less than by 12 bombers that night. There was also reconnaissance flights and probable mine laying near Bristol. AA guns fired through the night and claimed to have hit a plane, but no victories could be confirmed. Losses for the day were seven British aircraft and 16 for the Luftwaffe. Total reported losses to date were 57 and 98, respectively. July 25th was a bloody day in the Battle of Britain, for both sides, but these numbers would soon be dwarfed by Adler talk as the date for Operation Sea Line drew near. Greetings from Central Virginia. Uh, just a couple of things and then I'll let you go. 
Uh, first thing, most important, the tour information. Everything has been finalized. Please check it out at historyworldtravel.com. Um, you can sign up by credit card, pay for everything there, or call them, ask them any questions. But the itinerary and the dates and everything is there. Um, I think it's going to be amazing. I can't wait to meet as, as many of you as I possibly can. Um, a lot of people who are in the UK said even if they don't sign up, they're just going to swing by and say hi. Hey, please do. I would love to meet a lot as many of you as I possibly can. Um, second of all, again, I just want to say thank you to Paul Finch for the website. He's really done a lot for me. And um, if you ever need anything, any web-based um, design or almost anything to do with the web, he could probably do it all. Just find him on Twitter at Paul V. Finch. You can contact him that way, see his website, all that kind of stuff. So again, thank you, Paul. And hopefully he and I are going to do a show together soon about um, some of the air battles that happened in Scotland before they happened in Britain. We're still working on that. And lastly, I just want to thank the people who made donations. Uh, Malcolm in Canberra, Australia. Joshua B. in Birmingham, Alabama. Steve W. in Perth, Australia. Duncan in Nottingham, UK. Robert P. in Bray, California. T.A. of Balsam Common, UK. Ian H. in Auckland, New Zealand. And Dennis B. of Culver City, California. And then there's Joseph S. of Seymour, Victoria, Australia, who tried to donate, but something went wrong. But I do appreciate it, Joseph. Um, and I'm not just saying their names because they gave me donations, which if they hadn't, I certainly wouldn't have the number of books that I do. But a lot of times, actually more times than not, they share with me information about their family. Um, the grandparents or uncles who were in the war, affected by the war, their lives were changed by the war, or maybe their grandparents met because of the war. Um, and they just share this information with me and I really do appreciate it. Um, you don't know me, but you listen to the podcast and you share this and it really means a lot to me. Like uh, Malcolm in, in uh, Australia, he had one uncle who was uh, one of the rats at Tobruk and he had two other uncles fighting the Japanese in, in Asia and the uncle in North Africa made it home, but he was certainly affected um, for the rest of his life by what he had saw, what he went through. You know, and that affects everybody's life uh, who comes after them. So thank you for the donation. Thank you for the information. But more importantly, thank you for the stories that you share with me. Um, they do help me when I come to those parts in the podcast. But I really do get a lot out of it and means a lot to me. And I just want to say thank you. Take care, everyone. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the, the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can say big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.